Easter weekend, popular New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof wrote a column entitled, President Carter, Am I a Christian? This is what a portion of the article read like. What about someone like me, whose faith is in the Sermon on the Mount, who aspires to follow Jesus' teachings, but is skeptical that he was born of a virgin, walked on water, multiplied loaves and fishes, or had a physical resurrection? Am I a Christian, President Carter? President Carter responded, I do not judge whether someone else is a Christian. Jesus said, judge not. So ultimately, President Carter was unhelpful in answering Mr. Christoph's question. This wasn't the first time, however, that Christoph had posed the question in an article. Earlier, around Christmas time, he had interviewed Pastor Tim Keller in an original article titled, Am I a Christian? Tim didn't get his name in the headline for some reason, I don't know. This is what he writes. So where does that leave people like me? Am I a Christian? A Jesus follower? A secular Christian? Can I be a Christian while doubting the resurrection? Keller responded, I wouldn't draw any conclusions about an individual without talking to him or her at length. But, in general, if you don't accept the resurrection or other foundational beliefs of Christianity, which are outlined in the Apostles' Creed, I'd say you're outside the boundary. Basically, uh, Keller tells Mr. Christoph, if you don't believe in the incarnation or the resurrection, then you are not a Christian. What do you think? Is Mr. Christoph a Christian? How can someone like Nicholas Christoph, or any of us for that matter, know if we are Christians? Who has the authority to answer such a question? The answer is quite simply, the church has the authority to answer such a question. The local church is the authority that Jesus has established on earth to affirm and give shape to both my Christian life and yours. And the keys to get into the the gospel household, that that authority is wielded by each and every church member. It's an authority that comes upon them when they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he's the God-man. When they make that profession of faith, when you become a Christian and you come together with other Christians who say, yes, you believe the gospel and affirm that salvation in you, you, you then become part of the church that exercises this authority. Part of how we know if we are following Jesus or not is based upon not only our gospel confession, but our gospel living and the affirmation of our brothers and sisters in Christ that indeed we know him and are walking with him. In our text today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's where we're at in the book, Paul is going to address the issue of church discipline. The church is going to pronounce that a man who is caught in sin is not a Christian. They're going to say, we can't affirm his Christianity, and so we're removing him from our number. The fruit of his life is not matching up with his profession of faith, and so we must put him out. Now, he, he could be a Christian since the church's authority is um, merely declarative, right? The church, we don't make people Christians, 
but we do declare, we affirm uh, what God is doing in them. And so our exhortation this morning is the same as Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5. It's this, be the church, that's our theme of Corinthians, it's going to say, protect the name of Jesus. He wants us to protect the name of Jesus by receiving true disciples into our midst, affirming their faith, and removing false disciples from membership. Church discipline is aimed at protecting Jesus' reputation and at pursuing the repentance of the person who's caught in sin. It's pursuing their good. And so uh, we're going to walk through an outline in, in a couple parts. We're going to see Paul address the problem. He's going to show us what the problem in Corinth is, and then he's going to offer a solution. And then parts of that solution, he's going to talk about addressing the problem with unity, with authority, with grief, and with love. And so that's the, the stage upon which uh, we are sitting this morning. And I would like to pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, we ask that you would melt our hearts with the love of Jesus. That you would make us receptive to your plan for your people. That you would help us to live in obedience to that. We thank you for the cross and for the grace by which we are saved and for the grace by which we live lives that become patterned after Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask that you would be with us now, that you would give us ears to hear just what it is you're saying to us. Send your spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles, or pagans. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief? And remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in the Spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
It did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Now some of you might be thinking right away, Paul is saying they very much need to judge this immoral brother who's caught in sin, but didn't he just at the beginning of chapter 4 tell us Don't judge anything until the appointed time. Right? You can see that right in the first five verses there. So which is it? Should we make judgments or should we not judge? I think a lot of times uh, we want to make the Bible less complex than it is, and so we want to have black and white understandings of judge or don't judge, which is right or which is wrong. But, But Scripture's perspective on that is a little bit more nuanced. I think Jesus helps clear it up for us a little bit in in John 7, 24, when he says this. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to a righteous judgment. Let me paraphrase. Stop making judgments that are according to worldly, superficial standards that make no sense. And start making judgments according to God's standards, in accord with God's word. Be wise in your judgments. Everybody makes judgments all the time. The difference is, are they wise judgments or are they foolish judgments? And so really the perspective of Paul here in chapter 4, he says, don't make such a foolish judgment of me, Corinthians. And remember he told them that they were living like worldly people, like people without the spirit in chapter 3. Say, you're judging me like worldly people. Don't judge me like that. You're foolish. And now in chapter 5, he's saying, put on your Christian lenses, live like Christians, and make a right judgment. Judge wisely. Remove the evil person from among you. I mean, he is sinning in a terrible way. I'm going to get ahead of myself there. Let me reverse here. There's a, a judgment that is forbidden to Christians. That's the worldly judgment. That's a judgment according to the things of this earth. And there is a judgment that is required of us as Christians. One that is sound and in accord with righteousness. And so Paul is saying, as he lays out this problem, that the Corinthians need to address the issue. He's incredulous. I mean, do you hear it? Like he's, it's actually reported among you that there's sexual immorality and of a kind that's not even tolerated among Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, Paul is saying this is the kind of thing that even sinners think is bad, right? This is a hot mess. You guys have to get it together. A man is sleeping with his father's wife? And that's how the text reads. We don't know if it's his, his mom. Uh, most people like to think it's a stepmom. I would like to think that too, but who knows. Either way, his girlfriend also has mom in the title, and that's gross. It's outside the boundary 
of God's design for sexuality. Remember, God has created sexuality to exist only within the covenant of heterosexual marriage because sex is designed to teach us about God. It's designed, just like the marriage covenant itself, to teach us about how God is committed to loving us forever and ever. It's supposed to teach us about His faithful love and the joy and the pleasure that comes only from being in relationship with Him. He demands loyalty from us. And He is loyal to us. Church, we are the bride of Christ. And He will not share our affections with anyone else. That's why He won't tolerate idols. Marriage and sex are all about God. And here the Corinthians are arrogant. They're they're celebrating this misuse of sexuality. Look how tolerant we are. Look how diverse we are. Anybody can come to church here. They're proud because they have forgotten that sex is not about them, it's about God's glory. And that God draws the lines of obedience, of orthodoxy, of what it means to follow Jesus. And, and don't it's important for us to remember that God cares about what we do with our bodies. He cares about your sexuality. We're going to see that a lot more in chapter 6, but, but we have to remember that we don't get to make up the purpose of sex. God, God's already defined that for us. He created sex, and He created you, and He owns you. So you can't, because you are owned by God, redefine sexuality according to your own whimsy, right? And if you're a Christian, you're not just owned once by virtue of God creating you. You're owned twice. You're doubly owned by virtue of God redeeming you. Let me read from from chapter 6, 19 and 20. Paul says, addressing the issues of sexuality that are going on, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Every part of the Christian life is a derivative of those few words. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Because we are not our own, we can claim no right to customize our sexuality in a way that seems preferable to us. This is what I'm getting at. This man's sexual orientation does not nullify his sin. God has called it sinful. It's outside of his design. And any kind of sexual activity, any misuse of sexuality, ought to strike us as just as ghastly as this guy sleeping with his father's wife. And so Paul says they must address this immoral situation. They need to remove the person from their midst. And they need to do it together. Look at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
Let me go back to four again. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you all, saying, do this together. This is an action of the entire church. Everybody in the church participates in this loving and worshipful act that we call church discipline. Everybody has a part to play. I think also we see in verse 4 the importance of belonging to a church. Like It is a great and awesome privilege to be a part of the people of God. So much so that the penalty for such a heinous sin is removal from the people of God. Of God. I mean, belonging to a church, being part of the people of God is an awesome privilege. And the penalty for not being part of the people of God is exclusion. Yet how often do we choose to bring this penalty onto ourselves even when we're not in sin? Exclusion from the body of Christ. We self-inflict it just by uh, absence when it's unneeded or unfounded. Sometimes perpetual absence because we know, hey, I, I can get by with three or four weeks not coming to church here. They, they won't put me under discipline. You know, it takes a little bit longer for that to happen. I'm good. Cut ourselves off from the body of Christ by, by not attending our gathering or not connecting during the week, not, not getting into relationship with one another. Just something to think about. The church is God's beloved. It's the bride of Christ. Ephesians tells us it's the fullness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us the church is the body of Christ. If you love Christ, you will be in and among and with the people of Christ. That's why 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we are obedient to God, then we will have fellowship and relationship with one another. If we do not, the penalty for not being in relationship with one another, the evidence that we're not in relationship with Christ is exclusion from the people of Christ. Paul reminds them to remove the sinner together, that this is the action of everybody, that it's aimed at protecting the name of Jesus, Jesus' reputation, because they, they, they want to make it very clear that this man is not an example of what Jesus is like. He's not living a Christian life. So we're going to remove him. It's aimed at protecting the name of Jesus, and hopefully through exclusion, Hopefully this exclusion will be devastating in such a way that it will lead the person caught in sin to repentance and restoration. Paul says that they must remove the person together. And also, if you look at verse 4 again, that they should remove the unrepentant person with the authority of Jesus. Right? He says, I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Two things here. When we gather, when we're assembled as the people of God, Jesus is present. Now, of course, Jesus is present with the Christian all the time, right? Lo, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. But Jesus is uniquely present and powerfully present with us when we gather together. There is something mysterious going on. 
something special, that Christ is here when His people gather. That should amaze you. It should impact the way that you get ready to come to these gatherings. How do you prepare to come to church? Do you prepare to come and encounter the living God? Or do you just do your best to get here and to, to focus and try not to let your mind wander about where you're going to eat for lunch? You can eat here today, by the way. We have a meal after. Clear that out for you so you can focus. Jesus is present with us. That's awesome. But also, Jesus backs us. He legitimizes our worship. He legitimizes the action that the church takes here, that the church is going to take if they listen to Paul. That Jesus gives, vests his authority in his people. Right? The church is like an embassy on earth of the kingdom of heaven. And its job is to recognize citizens of the kingdom of heaven and remove citizen, people that are, are not citizens of the kingdom of heaven, right? If you're not a citizen, you're not supposed to get in, but let's say you do. Uh, the action of church discipline is supposed to lead you to repentance and prove that, yes, you belong. But if you don't belong, eventually the action of church discipline is to say, this person is not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. They've abandoned the gospel in terms of uh, they've stopped repenting of their sin or they've got their doctrine twisted up. They've abandoned the fundamentals of what it means to follow Jesus. Isn't it extraordinary that we get to act on behalf of Jesus? That as a church, each and every one of us carries those keys to the kingdom of heaven just a little bit. And that together, when we take action to accept someone into our fellowship, we are speaking with the voice of Christ. This one belongs to him. Has professed repentance and faith, believes in the gospel. This person is part of the people of God. And when we remove someone from our faith, we are doing so, from our faith, from our church, we are doing so with the authority of Jesus. Right? This verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, I'm with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, the power of the Lord Jesus is present, and it is behind what the action you're about to do. With the power of the Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. This is an awesome privilege. It's an awesome responsibility, and we need to steward it well. Whenever we welcome someone into our fellowship, we want to do so with great joy, but we want to recognize what we're doing there. Not just increasing the number of people on our membership list. We're affirming someone's salvation. And let me tell you, friends, it is a hateful thing to do when you look at someone's life and you don't see any gospel fruit and you say, yeah, man, you're saved. Your name can stay on our membership list because it makes us feel better about ourselves, makes us feel like we're a bigger church and we're more important. That's hateful. It is hateful to sit uh, aside, as ACDC might put it, the highway to hell. It is hateful to sit there and wave at people because you are too squishy and spineless to stand up and say, No! Turn! Sin leads to death and destruction 
and what you are doing by abandoning the fellowship, whether through your unrepentant sin or your perpetual absence, it's no good. It ends in death. We need to be bold. We need to recognize what it is we're doing when we receive someone into our fellowship and when we remove them from that fellowship. Our removal from the fellowship is not to be mean, it's to be a bold announcement. It's an appeal. Return. Repent. Live according to the grace of God that has been given to you. We, we want our churches to be a place that is safe for sinners but that is not safe for sin. Does that make sense? Right? It's like, if you are a broken sinner, we're all broken sinners. We all need grace, but we're a mess. But Jesus loves us. And in response to that love, we say, Lord, I want to love you well. I want to live like you. However, when we stop living that way, this this process of discipline is necessary. We, we, we appeal to the sinner that they might be restored to fellowship, that they might start living in accord with repentance and faith. This is an awesome responsibility, church. And I, I've, We've preached on church discipline before. We did a short series. It was a year or two ago now. Um, it was just four messages, and we talked about church discipline and the role of the church and all those things. And I tried to help kind of engrave in your minds uh, this responsibility with uh, the famous words of Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, right? Tobey Maguire version. You remember when he finds out that he, before, right before he finds out that he's Spider-Man, has all these awesome powers, Uncle Ben is like dying and it's just really dramatic. Check it out sometime. Uh, and he says to Tobey Maguire, with great power comes great responsibility. And, and those words kind of mark Spider-Man's life the rest of the way. This is, this is true. This is true of what we have a great power and privilege as God's people, and we have a great responsibility. You are going to give an account. I am going to give an account for who we welcome into our membership and who we allow to stay when we should have removed them from it. With me? There is going to be questions of us from God about our actions here, how we stewarded his authority. Paul also tells them that when they embark on church discipline, that it's something that is done with trepidation and grief. Look at verse 2. He says, shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this. Grief should mark us when we see a brother or a sister caught in sin. We, we should have broken hearts when someone chooses sin over the Savior. I mean, that, that should tear you up because sin leads to death. It kills it steals, it, it destroys. And so when we do decide that church discipline is necessary in the lives of one of our members, we, we begin that task, we set our hands to that task with trepidation and grief out of obedience to what God has told us to do. 
Paul also tells them that they should remove the unrepentant sinner from among them for his good, for the good of the person. It's not worded that way, but that's what's going on in verse 5. Let me read it to you again after I take a drink of water. Drink too much coffee today. Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's a little complicated and and people argue over what it means. Uh, The commentator that I thought got it best wrote this. Turning the man over to Satan means putting him outside the sphere of God's protection within the church and leaving him exposed to the satanic forces of evil in hope that the experience would cause him to repent and return to the fellowship of the church. See, friends, God's enemies, even those who hate God, are his instruments. The devil is awful, but he's still God's devil. No one can escape the sovereign rule of the king of the universe. One thinks of Paul's thorn in the flesh that's a messenger from Satan that he speaks of. What it is, nobody really knows. But what we do know is Paul didn't like it. He wanted God to remove it from him. Called it a messenger of Satan. And God said, no, it keeps you weak. And in your weakness, my strength is perfected. God utilizes even his enemies as his instruments to serve his purposes. He turns the best laid plans of men and angels alike to serve his agenda. I think the cross is the best example of this. Men and women cried, crucify him. They wanted to kill Jesus. That was evil. Satan smiled, wanted to kill Jesus. That was evil. And for a few days, evil thought it had won a great victory, that it had extinguished light and life from the world, that hope was dead and buried. But hope got up again, because what men meant for evil, God meant for good. And the cross is majestic. It is glorious. It's this place where we see our sin laid upon the Savior and punished in Christ, so that just as Christ got up from the grave, we too can get up from the grave by faith in Him. And that great exchange that happens at the cross, he takes our sin, we take his righteousness. It's beautiful. And God leveraged evil to make it happen. And that's how big he is. I love when the psalmists talk about, like, I can't get away from you, God. Like, I go here and you're there. I I could go up to the moon and you're there. That's not what he says, I'm paraphrasing. But, But no matter where I go, you're all around. I'm bumping into you. Likewise, evil cannot get outside of God's sovereign plan. That's not only true in Christ's suffering, but it's true in your suffering. It's true in the suffering of this one that would be removed from the protection of the church. Like If this person is a true Christian, his suffering, the suffering that he experiences as a consequence of being removed, will lead him to repentance and restoration. That God will use the work of the evil one in this person's life to bring him into a place of repentance and faith. Restore him. 
and this isn't in our particular text here, uh, but if you remember when you do church discipline, Matthew 18, there's typically a process that goes on. It takes place over a period of time, uh, and then the person is removed. And um, Peter asks right after that, he says, how many times should I forgive my neighbor if he sins against me? And he says seven times, which is pretty generous. And Jesus says not seven times, but seven times 77. And he tells this parable in which uh, a man is, is, the point of the parable is forgive, forgive. And so the second somebody repents of sin, if they've been under church discipline, even if they've been removed from us, when we can verify that that's true repentance, we welcome them back with rejoicing and happiness because that, that was the goal, to bring them back in step with the Holy Spirit. It can really be a beautiful process. I mean, when, when we were in North Wake, Chelsea and I, uh, we saw this process you know, people would abandon their spouses, and we saw marriages restored. We saw people uh, that were seeking divorce come together and, and renew their vows. I mean, yes, there were cases where people left the church. One woman in my small group, three small children, husband abandoned her, and he never came back. But we certainly didn't want anyone to think he was a Christian because that's not the way of God. That's sin to abandon your spouse. And we want to say, until this man repents, we cannot affirm his salvation. He's been removed from our congregation. He doesn't represent Jesus. Jesus doesn't leave anyone. Not anyone who's put their faith in him. He doesn't leave them. He doesn't forsake them. Suffering and evil are leveraged to the end of serving God's purposes. Love the verse in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though the outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. When we do church discipline, our focus is not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Our focus is not on the temporary situations of hurt feelings or whatever else comes along with it, but on what is eternal. We have in mind the eternal good of the person that is being removed from our midst at the end of the process, or the person that's just being corrected at the very beginning of the process. It's for the good of the person. It's also for the good of the church. Look at verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. That part is key. That part is key. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven is a little bit like yeast, but they didn't have yeast back then, so some of your translations might have yeast, some have leaven. But basically, the kind of concept is the same. It causes the bread to rise. Leaven, they would uh, cut off an old piece of bread that they'd already made, and they'd throw it in with the new batch, and it would permeate that new batch of bread in there, and guess what? It would ferment and cause it to rise when you put it in the oven. I'm not a baker, so that analogy is a little bit lost on me. Although now the illustration I'm going to propose, I guess I'm not a gardener either, but... <clears throat> 
If you're a gardener, maybe you've heard of this. Have you heard of kudzu vine? If you know kudzu, what happens is it takes over everything if you don't deal with it. I mean, it smothers and strangles and coils the life out of everything else. And so if you get some kudzu in your garden, you better deal with that stuff right away or you're just going to have a big old heap of kudzu. That's Paul's point here. If you don't deal with the sin that is in your midst, it will permeate and work its way through everything else and it will smother and coil and choke out the life that exists within my people. Sin needs to be dealt with. It has consequences. Saying, after all, you need to be what you are. You're not, you're not kudzu. You know, you're tomatoes or whatever's in the garden. Be true to your identity. You're not a leavened loaf of bread. You're an unleavened loaf of bread. And then he draws on this analogy from the Exodus, right? Saying, to be a Christian means to live in the Passover, to live in the deliverance from the bondage of sin. Remember that unleavened bread would bring all those images up of leaving Egypt just after the lamb was sacrificed so that they could have life and they were moved out of bondage, out of slavery and into sonship. Paul is saying, live as sons, not as slaves. He's saying Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't submit to the yoke of slavery, which is your sin, but live free in Christ. Romans 6, 2 through 4 is what Paul's saying. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. And the way he says it in 1 Corinthians right here is clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. Be what you are. Christ has made you new. He's made you a new people, a people that are free from sin, free from death. Don't return to the yoke of slavery, but live as sons and daughters. Live as the children of the King. Don't return to the slavery of sin. Be who you are. Disciplines for the good of the church. Enables the church to be an accurate depiction, a display of God's glory, rather than a forgery. Look at verse 9. Paul continues. He said, I'm not talking about all these non-Christians, right? I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. Saying, I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. And I want you to engage those that are in the world and living according to the world, not with judgment, but with the gospel. These are the people that you are to be in relationship with. You are to be loving. You are to be a friend of sinners, just like Jesus was. I wonder... How many non-Christian friends do you have? Are you a friend of sinners? Or did you get this backwards like maybe the Corinthians did and use it as an excuse, A, to allow sin to exist in the church and not care, pride, or B, 
pride again, cut yourself off from all non-Christian relationships. I can't be around those people. They're too messy. They're unlovely. Friends, Christ has loved us when we were unlovely. And it's his love that makes us beautiful. Likewise, we need to love people even when they appear unlovely to us. Remembering that, that was, that's us. That's us. And that they too can be made beautiful by the love of Christ. We need to be friends of sinners. Paul continues in verse 11, reinforcing his point. But I actually wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. He says, actually, I wrote because it seems that there was... Not going to make it too confusing for you, uh, but there's a letter that comes prior to this one to the Corinthians, right? So First Corinthians is really Second Corinthians, and there's another Corinthian letter, and so Second Corinthians is maybe like Fourth Corinthians. Anyhow, th- there, there's another letter that Paul sent along, telling them what to do, and they've they've messed it up in some way, and so he's clarifying here what's going on. He's saying, befriend sinners. That's fine. You you need to be in the world, but not of it. But you need to deal with the person that claims to be a Christian, and then doesn't live like a Christian. You need to confront the person in your midst and correct their sin. And if they refuse to repent, you need to remove them from your midst. And so here's the question. The point of verse 13 is very plain. Remove the evil person from among you. Why don't we? Why don't churches practice church discipline? Why don't we do this? Two ideas real quick. First, I think, is arrogance, just like the Corinthians. We think we are smarter and more loving than God. This one's very uh, prevalent today. I think people go, you know, if God knew all that, that I knew, he would think differently about this man's sexuality. He would understand that this guy prayed about it, and he really has a peace about sleeping with his father's wife. It really feels like that's right. And so that, that's what we would need to affirm him in that since he has a peace. Or, doesn't God understand, if God knew that this was this guy's sexual orientation, then certainly he would bless it. I mean, doesn't God know that true freedom is found in being true to yourself? Friends, to be true to yourself is to be true to sin and death and destruction. It's not freedom, it's slavery. True freedom is not in being true to yourself, but in being true to who God has made you in Christ. You're never going to be more fully yourself than when you have completely abandoned yourself and your desires to the desires of Christ that have been created within you by the Holy Spirit. That's when you're going to be most alive. When you take your hands off of your life and submit it to Jesus. I think that we somehow paint ourselves as more loving than God because we will affirm people in their sin rather than confront it. Which leads to the second reason I don't think we do this often. Fear. We are afraid that they might not come back to church. And that will be a little itty-bitty church and nobody will like us. So we, we can't do that. 
It might offend them. It might cause a rift in our relationship. Or they might think I'm foolish. Other people around them might think I'm foolish. I think this is a real a big one, that we care about being considered fools by those around us. It's a uh, children's story. I'm really sad that the LaFleur kids aren't here today. I was ready to just give them this story. This is for them. You can tell them. Uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with The Emperor's New Clothes. Have you read this one? Uh, basically, uh, there's an emperor in the book I read. He's depicted as an elephant. Uh, anyhow, the, the emperor has some thieves come. He's really into clothing, likes it. And these thieves convince him that there's this magical fabric he's never heard about. The thing is, the only people that can see it are wise people that are fit to rule the kingdom. And so uh, they pretend to cloak him in this magic fabric, and he has a suit cut, and he puts it on, and he pretends to see the fabric because he doesn't want to be thought a fool. And so he quite literally sets up a parade to show off the new fabric to everybody in the kingdom, and he's parading around in his underwear. But everybody in the kingdom, they don't want to be thought a fool either. So, oh, how marvelous. I've never seen such a beautiful fabric. And they're all just seeing, like, the hearts on his underwear, <laughs> like, worried about being fools. And that's the scene until a little boy brazenly shouts out, probably paraphrasing here, hey, he's in his underwear. What are y'all talking about? At which point, the emperor realizes the truth of the situation, is properly humiliated, and returns to the palace. But what happens is that he takes the boy and he makes him one of his trusted advisors because he's so thankful for his honesty. Honesty is the virtue that that story teaches. And I think it's a good virtue for us to pick up as well. We mustn't fear being called fools by our friends because we step in to correct their sin. We need to do what is right, what's ultimately going to be most helpful for them in light of eternity. We need to care enough about the integrity of Jesus' reputation to protect it by receiving true and repentant disciples into our congregation and removing counterfeit disciples who refuse to repent, who refuse to obey the word of God from it. Because if you are not repenting, you are not a Christian. I mean, the whole Christian life is repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. I mean, that's it believing in Jesus, trusting him to cleanse us from our sins and from all unrighteousness, to purify us. And those who hope in him purify themselves as he is pure. And so your passion for purity will prove the reality of your pardon. If you have no passion for purity in your life, no passion to be Christ-like, then we call into question if you have actually no Christ and have experienced the pardon that can only be offered by Christ. We want to care enough about each other to remove a sinner from among us who refuses to repent. We want to care enough to remove the, the, the sin from our own lives, remove that speck of dust from our own eyes, so that we might be able to perform whatever eye surgery is necessary on our brother. We want to make wise judgments. We want to love one another well and boldly. We need to care enough about Jesus' reputation, about the gospel, to answer the question for people, to help people answer the question, am I a Christian? 
You need to be able to say to them, if you are repenting and believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God for your salvation and living in accord with that, if you're repenting and believing in Jesus, yes, you're a Christian. We receive you into our membership. We affirm your Christianity as a church. And we need to care enough if somebody comes to us asking, am I a Christian? And they say, but I don't really think Jesus rose from the dead. To say, no, you are not believing in Jesus. You're outside the boundaries of Christianity. This is our role as a church. To be a display of God's glory to the nations, to our communities, and to one another. We need to make sure that when we are painting this picture of what a Christian life looks like, that we're not creating a forgery because of our arrogance or our fear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a difficult passage. It's one of the hardest in the New Testament. But we thank you for it. We thank you that even though church discipline isn't easy, that it's a spiritual rescue mission aimed at uh, protecting your reputation and pursuing those who would turn from you and are bent on destruction so that they might turn from that destruction and believe and be saved and have life instead of death. Father, the gospel is beautiful. We thank you that we're saved by your grace alone through faith alone. We also thank you that saving faith is never alone. It always is followed by good works. We thank you that because of Christ, we can declare we are accepted before you. We're acceptable. We're in relationship with you. And therefore, because of the affection you have for us, we we want to live out this faith. We don't want to get it backwards. And we don't want to call Christian, anyone who lives as a devil and denies the gospel by their lifestyle. Father, help us to be faithful in this. Help us to steward your authority that you vested in us as a local church well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.